Welcome to Authors Revealed. I'm Becky Anderson. We are thrilled and so inspired to have Iftahaj Muhammad here with her story about being the first Muslim American woman to win a medal at the Olympics. The book is proud. And what's so great, there is a young reader's edition out too. Iftahaj, it's so wonderful to have you here. We are honored to have you here. And I just can't tell you how incredible it has for you to write this story um, that you've written. And I think it's even more special that at the same time, the book's only been out for, this is the third day, because it came out this past Tuesday, but to have that young reader's edition come out on the same day. Yeah. So many times we have such wonderful stories that need to be told, and we have to wait for a while to get this story for young readers. So thank you so much for doing this at the same time. Well, thank you Is for that, having me. Yeah. It's great to be here. I know, it's so great to have you here. And you know, since it's been only out for three days, how does it feel? I know, you know, all the things you've, you've gone through with your, your education, but also being a champion fencer, but now you're an award-winning author um, with a Kirkus star, you have three starred reviews, which is absolutely incredible for the Young Readers Edition. So how does it feel to be award-winning author now and have that book finally on shelves and bookstores everywhere? Well, you're the first to refer to me as such, so I appreciate that. <laughs> That's an easy thing, um, yeah. I feel like this is an award ceremony, so I don't know if I do a thank you speech <laughs> yet, uh, yeah, right. it, you know, um, to write your own story is, is yeah. difficult in, in, in its own way. And it felt very therapeutic for me to, to pen my story and hopefully share it in a way that helps others. There were so many different obstacles throughout my career as an athlete that um, happened and I wouldn't have it any other way yeah. in the sense that they've helped make me who I am. Sure. And they feel like notches on the belt, in a sense. Yeah, right. And it, I, you know, I, I think that had I had a story like this available to me as a kid, um, it would have made a lot of the bullying or the moments of sadness and depression, it would have made it easier to navigate right. those spaces. And it becomes a lot harder when you feel alone at times. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and the story is so inspiring. And I, I know your hope is for a lot of young girls to read this. I think anyone can get something from this story and feel inspired to be, so. to be better with oh, this yeah. in a lot of different ways. So how did you decide that you were gonna do this and put this story down on paper? What was, what was that spark that made you wanna do this? From the moment I qualified for the United States Olympic team, mm -hmm. my journey felt bigger than me. I realized what it meant to have not only you know, a woman of color represent the United States women's saber team, but also to have a Muslim woman who wore hijab represent the United States at the Olympic Games. It was instantaneously transforming a negative narrative that has been created for generations about the Muslim community um, to show Muslim women who, you know, it's in a positive light. It's representing Team USA at the highest level of sport. You know, I'm American by birth, I'm not Arab, I only speak English. Um, I'm African-American. There's all these different things that, that challenge these misconceptions that people have about our community as Muslims. And I felt like competing and bringing home a medal was this unique opportunity 
to not only change minds outside of the Muslim community, but also to transform minds within the community. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think it was so inspiring to see you in Rio Thank in the you. opening ceremonies. And I can't tell you what, what pride. I mean, and I, I don't understand why the title of the, of the book is Proud, but what pr pride we had as Americans to see you there carrying our flag. Yeah. yeah well, I did really not incredible. carry the flag, but I was darn close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a close second to Michael yeah. Phelps. But to be, you know, uh, in the opening ceremonies, that's when yeah. the Olympic Games felt real to right. me. Yeah. Um, it sure. felt like something, you know, now walking with my Olympic teammates yeah. from, yeah. we all have these different stories and these different journeys, but we've all arrived at the same point, and, you know, in our careers where we have the opportunity to bring home an Olympic medal. Uh, it's an indescribable feeling. It still feels like a pinch me moment in my life. And I'm just so thankful to, to have, you know, represented our country at the highest level of sport. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the book, I was so happy to see how honest you were with your feelings and what, what happened throughout your, you know, from being a child, but working through and, and becoming a champion uh, fencer. But you were so honest with your emotions. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so... I felt like I got to know you mm -hmm. in a, to a certain degree. And I think readers, and especially for the young readers, I think kids are really going to get to know you. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you felt afraid to express any of that in the book. Was mm -hmm. it, were there parts that were harder for you to, to write about than others? and Or was it something you just felt you had to get down on paper? Um, it's always felt important to me to tell my story. Um, I will say it's a lot easier to write it than mm -hmm. it is to say it, to speak sure. it. Yeah. Um, I've spent so much of my career holding things in because it was easier to put my head down and compete than it was to, you know, muddy and, and create this this rocky environment for myself. Right. Um, it was just so much easier to prove myself on the yeah. fencing strip than it was to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with teammates or the coaching mm -hmm. staff. And when given the opportunity to express these emotions in these moments on paper, when I say that they feel very therapeutic in a way, yeah. is in the moment as an athlete, you don't have time to, you know, um, you don't have time to hang on on these unfortunate things that happen to you. You have to kind of shake it off and you have to go and compete. You have to, you know, do well, you have to perform. And in having to sit and remember and recount these different moments in my life that I think easily could have broken me. Yeah. Um, they allowed me a moment to think about it and and also be proud of myself yeah. for making it out of the other side because I know there were other people who, who've had experiences like mine who, who don't fare as well and um, are scared to continue and right. give up and yeah. they quit. Yeah. And there's something to be said to be resilient in moments like this. Oh, for sure. And I know you're very honest talking about your depression and the anxiety you had. And, you know, it's incredible how many people do have anxiety and they don't admit to it. But a lot of people that we think seem to so cool and so put together that they have these feelings. And I know you talked in the book about how how your family, your mom and your, your family helped you in this, but also how your faith helped you, but also learning from professional help and strategies and things that you could do to help you get through this. Because it, it must have been, I mean, all the pressure that you were under, plus all the, the other pressure from, from other players and your teammates and things like that, it, it must have been 
how, how did you pull yourself up and get into the groove where you knew these were the things that I had to do to get myself out of this? Mm. Yeah. I remember these conversations with my mom uh, and talking about sadness. And I didn't know what it was. I, all, I knew is, all I knew was um, I felt sad all the time. I felt really lethargic at times. And no matter what I did, I would always come back to you know, this overwhelming feeling of sadness. Yeah. And when I competed, um, that maybe what off the strip, I think manifested itself in a way of depression. On the strip, it manifested itself physically mm -hmm. uh, in performance anxiety, where I couldn't, I couldn't move. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't move my feet forward. I couldn't move my feet back. I couldn't evade an opponent. I couldn't attack an opponent. I couldn't do anything. I was like yeah. paralyzed. Yeah. And this is, you know, at, when I'm, you know, five, six, seven in the world. So I knew that I had to do something and I had to seek help because I ha like I love my parents to pieces, but mm -hmm. um, my parents are very, very spiritual, very religious. And they thought, you know, you have to pray more. That's how, you know, you'll help your sadness. And for me, I don't, I don't, I don't correlate, you know, feelings of sadness with lack of, of piety. Right. I don't right. think that the two are correlated. Sure, sure. Yeah. So your parents have been a huge support in your family, and how how did you how did you end up in fencing when you were 12 years old? I and, and choosing that as a sport because I know your parents and, and your siblings too. They wanted you all to be involved in a sport. Mm -hmm. So tell us how you ended up being a fencer. So uh, I'm one of five kids, and in our household, you didn't have a choice in whether yeah. or not you played sport. It was more so, so of like, which sport do you want to play? So in trying these different sports of tennis and track and field, softball, you name it, I played it. Mm -hmm. uh, parents always had to change the uniform for me by adding long sleeves and adding long pants. Right. And I remember at 12, my mom and I were driving, and we passed a local high school. And at that time, the fencing team practiced inside the school cafeteria. And you could see them from, from the stoplight outside. You could oh. see the fencing team. Yeah. And I remember my mom saying, whoa, you know, they're, those athletes are like covered. I don't know what sport that is, but we got to check it out. Yeah. And um, we, that's how we kind of discovered fencing, through like Google. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We, we figured out what right. fencing was. And when I got to high school that next fall at 13, I, I picked up my first fencing sword. Yeah. And how did that feel the first time you did that? Very foreign. Yeah. Uh, fencing yeah. did not come naturally to me by any stretch of the imagination, but I was blessed to um, walk into a team that was so embracing and loving and supportive. and. You didn't have to win um, yeah. and be one. Of, you didn't have to be an athlete that provided tangible wins to be made to feel important on that team. Right. right. And I coached that team well after I graduated from high school. Oh, okay. I coached Columbia High School, which I found out last night for six years. I didn't know it was that long. Yeah. Um, but that same energy, that same sense of unity and camaraderie and family is still there to this day. Oh, that's so cool. And I've been on many of teams. And I will say that Columbia High School is unique. Oh, that's yeah. great. What a great mm -hmm. place to really, really get established in the sport and everything. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I read about the, the Peter Westbrook Foundation that mm -hmm. you got involved in. Tell us about that because I think that made a huge difference for you as, as, a, as an athlete and, mm -hmm. and a fencer. When I um, was at a fencing competition, um, there was a woman who came to me, a white woman, like a, of a parent of another athlete, and mm -hmm. she said, 
you know, I, uh, I know that there's black kids who fence in New York City. And I was frustrated because within the sport of fencing, it was the first time in my life I realized that my skin color and my religious beliefs had the power to change how people treated me. Mm. And in fencing, I was always acknowledged for being different, you know? Yeah, right. So when this woman said that to me, I remember being offended, but at the same time, I was kind of, kind of intrigued because I was always the only black kid at the competitions, right. always the only Muslim girl. So I'm like, okay, I want to know, like, where are there people who look like me who fence? So more research, more Google, and I stumbled upon the Peter Westbrook Foundation. And I remember my mom took me, and my young, my sister was very young at the time, I think she was only like eight or nine, mm -hmm. uh, took us to New York City and we found the foundation. And in seeing athletes who, you know, were athletes of color, who were on Olympic teams, who were world medalists, who had this extensive knowledge of the sport, yeah. it allowed me to unconsciously graph my aspirations as an athlete. And okay. I, I didn't even know that fencing after college existed until I discovered the Peter Westbrook Foundation at 16. Yeah. Um, you know, sports and, and discipline, and I, I, you know, I know you are an incredibly disciplined athlete and became so, um, but how, how did fencing help with that? What, what kind of a discipline? Tell us about the sport itself and how it disciplines um, an athlete who really takes it seriously. I think that it's not, uh, discipline isn't unique to fencing. I think it's sport in general. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you want to excel at something, you need to put in work in order to achieve these goals that you set for yourself. And fencing is a quick reality check for mm -hmm. anyone who thinks that they're just gonna go out there without practice, without um, even mental training uh, and be successful. It, um, fencing is almost like a beast. It'll chew you up and spit you yeah. out if you're, if you're not prepared. Right. If you're not mentally prepared, if you're not physically sure. prepared, if you're not tactically prepared, if you're not hydrated, if you're not all these things. Yeah. And I think that when I realized that you need every single piece of the puzzle in order to be successful in the sport, um, I think that's when I was my most successful. So it does take quite um, a lot of discipline to say to your friends, I'm sorry I can't, I have to go to practice. Yeah. To spend, you know, hours when you get home watching videos of opponents yeah. and creating these logs of, of other athletes and making sure that you eat right and mm -hmm. you wake up at 6 a.m. to go running and there's all these things like when you're chasing perfection yeah. and you're chasing success, there's nothing that stands in your way. And right. I think that in turn is discipline itself. Sure. And it leads to other aspects of your life too. Mm -hmm. I've always heard this so much. You know, you know when you you aren't really engaged in a sport, it's sort of like other parts of your life sort of come together in oh, some yeah. ways within that discipline sort of thing. Can you relate to us some of those incidents of you know discrimination or ignorance or negativity that you experience because you're an African American young woman, you wear a hijab, you know those different things. What were those types of things? And, and also with teammates. Even with, you know, whether it was your Olympic teammates or other teammates, what were those kind of things you experienced? But when people knew who you were, that they could, you could change them. And you, you know, because I think the power of these books is, is that influence you can have to change. Yeah. yeah. I think that um, these stereotypes and misconceptions that exist mm -hmm. about, you know, people of color and particular ethnicities or religions or even us as women. Um, they often precede us before, you know, people even learn right. our name. And I think that was my experience with Team USA. Yeah. I was walking into a space as the only athlete of, col athlete of color 
traveling on, you know, sometimes a, a squad of 10, 12 girls um, and their parents. And it's interesting that there's these interactions where um, I think you're, for me as a black woman, expected mm -hmm. to be angry or hostile. And it's like, whoa, calm down. And it's yeah. like, but I didn't say anything. Right. Or ex they expect you to be angry yeah. and do things that provoke you to provoke this anger that they believe exists. Mm -hmm. But for me, I felt like I was constantly walking this tightrope of trying to not be the stereotype they want me to be. I'm trying not to uh, respond in a way that was meant to get a rise out of right. me yeah. by like failing to book hotel rooms or not tell me about team practices or be like, oh, you know, we didn't know you wanted to go to team dinner. Um, and I think that those are things that are meant to intentionally exclude a person right. Right. and make you feel not a part of and make you feel inferior to. And I think the hope is that, you know, you kind of fade yeah. um, and maybe you don't come back or you don't qualify for the next team. And I think, uh, probably the thorn in everybody's side is that I just never gave up. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you, how did you keep that calmness and not let it get to you? I mean, because that's incredible personal will not to let those things hurt or get, sure they can hurt, but not to let them control you or take yeah. over you. Yeah. Especially because I think I'm such a strong person. Yeah. You know, I'm not, um, I'm not one who allows other people to pick on me. But for whatever reason, in that space, I felt like I had the best way I knew to control it mm -hmm. was to not respond to it. Right. And um, I think that it was meant to like ruffle my feathers in a constant right. way. And I just, I don't know, for whatever reason, never responded. I, I looked at the coaching staff as like elders in a way, and I wasn't raised yeah. to raise my voice or to be disrespectful. So I kind of maintained um, that thought yeah. process throughout my career and when it came to my teammates I felt like it almost feels like a workplace environment yeah. you don't want to have an argument with your coworker. you don't want to create sure. this bad blood when you have to work together you have to right. perform together so I felt like I, I, I was suppressing even the desire to respond in 99.9% .9 of every yeah. single interaction wow. yeah. it takes a lot it takes a lot out of you a lot of it? restraint Wow but you know, I feel like um, oftentimes as black athletes, we have to be exceptional in order to be accepted. And yeah. that we carry a lot of baggage with us onto the strip that the other athletes don't have to have. Um, and that, you know, I've, my coaches used to say all the time that, you know, you're so strong, like right. use your strength. And the other athletes, it's like, you know, there's always a game plan because I think they're, they're made to believe that they have the capacity to think tactically and I'm told that I am not able to do that because as a black athlete, all I can bring to the table is strength. So there's the, all these different yeah. things that I think mm -hmm. in your mind you're bringing with you all the time, right. even if it's unconsciously. Yeah. And it's unfair. It's an unfair disadvantage right. that I think uh, we as athletes of color face. Yeah. But it's also trying to overcompensate for a stereotype that doesn't, you don't need to do anything about right. it. Right. Yeah. It's something it, that I learned as I got yeah. older. Uh, yeah. I guess wiser in my 30 years of existence yeah. is like yeah. um, to really kind of let go of all that baggage yeah. and, and realize at some point in my life that that is someone else's issue. That's their problem and it's not my, my burden to carry with me. Yeah. Sure. yeah. 
You know, I know you went to Duke University, and you got a, um, you got a, a double major. You did um, international relations and um, African-American studies. But you decided your junior year not to play on the, on the Duke University team. Senior year. Senior, oh, senior year. So um, what was that like going to Duke? And I love your majors. What a, what a great combination. Um, but leaving, leaving the sport for a little while, what was that like getting back to it? Because, and then ending up, you know, of course, representing the U.S. in the Olympics. Um, Duke was difficult. It yeah. was hard academically. Sure. It was a hard space to navigate. Uh, for me, I was the only woman in hijab at the school. Wow. Um, so I had culture shock from the moment I walked onto campus. Mm -hmm. there were, I remember there was a um, Confederate flag hanging a few doors down from from my dorm, my the my my uh, my building, my residence hall. There mm -hmm. was a few residence halls over. There was a Confederate flag, so mm -hmm. I felt very much like a like a fish out of water when right. I arrived at Duke. I wasn't really used to interacting with people who didn't have you know diverse friends who had never met a Muslim woman before having to f carry that flag everywhere I went and even yeah. though I was just kind of like I'm just here to get good grades and events yeah. you know like that's it <laughs> right. um, okay. I don't I don't want I didn't want to have to be that person all the time right. but I was you know yeah. there was the only Muslim on campus the only female a visible female on campus and um, I think for me the way I the way I uh, envisioned college mm -hmm. it was I thought of it as three entities there was yeah. the social entity there was the academic entity there was an athletic entity and I couldn't do all three yeah and for tough. a long time I only did the academic athletic entities and like I had no social life at all yeah and I remember I want to study abroad um, so when the opportunity came I decided I wasn't gonna fence uh, my senior year I went I studied abroad um, I went to Morocco yeah I had a social life for the first time Yay. I had friends right. it was amazing sure. and yeah. when I graduated from college I graduated in the midst of a recession Mm -hmm. and had to find a job. Um, had a really hard time finding a job as, you know, a woman of color, someone who wore hijab. Um, it was really hard for me. And uh, when, in that time frame, I just decided to, to keep fencing. Right. Yeah, we're glad you did. Yeah, yeah thank you. <laughs> so, you know, this book and, and the influence it can have, and it can have, it has such power. You know, and I think you should be so proud of what it can do. But um, what do you hope it will do for young girls who read about your story? Um, I don't care what their background is or anything. What, what do you hope that the book will do for young readers who read the young agenda, and then also for adults who read who read the, the adult version of Proud? I believe that my book is an opportunity to show our youth that they are capable that they don't need to fit into society's idea of who they should be, what they should become. Right. Um, and to really try to push past uh, society's limited expectations of their abilities. Uh, I mean, there's so many different things that I think um, really tie our minds down and don't allow us to imagine ourselves um, in the compa in the capacity I feel like we're meant to be, which is great. Yeah, I've always yeah. said that we each have a greatness that lies inside of us, and we owe it to ourselves to figure out what that is. Yeah, right. And to 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 realize that at a young age is a gift. You know, to say I am enough as I am, and I don't 
I don't need, you know, to be accepted by my friends. I don't need to be accepted by everyone else. I'm, I'm going to be myself, and I'm okay right. with that. And yeah. to find that happiness and have that control at a young age, I think, is so important. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. huge. It's mm -hmm. huge. So I know there was a Barbie that was designed with yeah. your name on it, and it came out last, was it last fall that it came out? Um, the Barbie comes out soon. Oh, it comes out soon? Yeah, it comes oh, out soon. I thought it was out already. Not yet. But I, I saw a video of it. How cool is that, that they put? And so how does it feel to have a Barbie doll? Because I know you said, and I, I was watching the interview, and, and you were saying how much dolls or Barbies meant to you when you were growing up and trying to imagine yourself in, in other situations and, and, and succeeding and everything, but playing with dolls in that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I played with dolls for so long. Yeah. And I remember my mom only bought us black and brown dolls and that was her way to see us represented in doll play. So for um, me walking down toy aisles and only seeing like two black dolls on the shelves and having both of those, so having to leave the toy store empty handed never having a doll who wore hijab and having to make my own yeah. as a kid. Yeah. Um, I think that this this effort of Mattel Shiro program to choose inclusiveness and diversity yeah. in moments where it's far easier to stay silent. Right. Um, I think that it's revolutionary, yeah. I really do. Yeah. And I, I'm looking forward to not just Muslim girls, but non-Muslim girls as well, yeah. to have the opportunity to play with a doll who chooses to wear hijab, um, and to have a fencing doll, which oh, I think is also doll, really yeah. cool. All yeah, I'm just very together. excited. Yeah. I am. Mm -hmm. And and the gear looks really good. Ah, wait till you see it. Oh. It's just oh, cool. it's awesome. Yeah. That is so cool. Mm -hmm. Not everybody gets a Barbie doll named after them. Design. Yeah. That is so cool. So tell us a little about your fashion company that you have with your sisters, right? Yeah. yeah. So I Luella. started my company, Luella, about yeah. four years ago. Yeah. And it was born out of necessity. Uh, I was having a really hard time finding long sleeve modest options to wear when I was doing speaking engagements for the State Department or you know, doing appearances as just an athlete and a public figure. Um, so to ha make this decision to start creating clothes um, that are meant for you know, not just Muslim women, but anyone who wants to dress modestly, who's looking for fashionable clothes, who wants them to be um, affordable and made mm -hmm. here in the yeah. United States. Right. We make everything in the United Fantastic. States. Yeah. We work with female manufacturers who employ other women. Um, so mm -hmm. we have very conscious efforts in our company to um, leave a strong footprint yeah. uh, on the market here in oh, the US. Wonderful. How exciting yeah. is Thank that you. for your own company. So tell us a little bit what you're working on now. And yeah. yeah. Um, so now, uh, the book. Yeah. I'm really excited yeah. Yeah. Uh, to hopefully um, continue to tell my story through uh, not just the adult memoir but also the young readers yeah. edition and um, up next I am self I'm working with self magazine mm -hmm. and Players Tribune which is Derek Jeter's media outlet right. um, to produce executive produce content around female athletes and their stories um, because had these women been men and been right. excelling in their sports, we would all know their names. That's right. So I'm hoping to change the way we report about mm -hmm. and tell the stories of female athletes yeah. and their and those abilities. stories need to be told, yes. just like yours. Oh, that's yeah. fabulous. Yeah. Well, great. good luck with that. Thank you. And um, thank you for these books because it's all about strength and courage and what you've had and what you can help a lot of other young women and all of us find that in ourselves as thank well. Thank you so much. Thank I appreciate so much. that. Yeah. 
What a great conversation with Ibtihaj Muhammad about her incredible story, about her experiences being the first Muslim woman to represent the United States in the Olympics and win a medal. Um, their books are incredible. The adult version, Proud, and there is a young adult version called Proud. Incredible story that inspires us all to find who we are inside of us all. Thanks so much for joining me on Authors Revealed.